Friends, our scripture passage for today is not an easy one. If you came here hoping for a light message, you will leave disappointed. Today's scripture passage is heavy. At times, it's dark. Truth be told, I would never preach on this passage if I were not assigned it by the narrative lectionary which we use to assign our readings. I'd avoid it because my default reaction is to avoid pain and avoid conflict and avoid unpleasant emotions. Anybody else? Maybe hearing this disclaimer, you're already looking for the exit door. It's right there. Or the bathrooms, they're back there. I don't blame you, but let me say it again. If you came here hoping for a a soft message to make you feel better, you'll probably leave disappointed. However, if you come here desperate, if you come here longing for a word from God, then you're in luck. Our scripture passage for today comes from the prophet Habakkuk. Say that after me, Habakkuk. Habakkuk lived. Habakkuk lived during a very dark time in the land of Judah. That's the southern part of Israel. He lived during a time called the exile. Say that after me, exile. This is what I do, what we do with Lily all the time. <laughs> the exile is when God's Old Testament people were kicked out of the promised land. This happened about 600 years before the time of Jesus. The prophet Habakkuk lived through this dark time. He witnessed the work of the ugly, aggressive superpower named Babylon. He saw firsthand their evil thirst for expanding their territory by violently taking over lands that belonged to others. And he saw this happen to his own land, Israel. The land he remembers as a kid, playing with his friends. The land where he met his wife, perhaps, and saw his own kids grow up. The land where his loved ones were buried. This land was being stolen from his people in the bright light of the day by the bully called Babylon. Which begs the question, how could God let this happen? Have you ever asked that question? God... How could you let this happen? Listen to the prophet in his own words. Habakkuk chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Lord, how long will I call for help and you not listen? I cry out to you violence, but you don't deliver us. Why do you show me injustice and look at anguish? so that devastation and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. The law is ineffective. Justice does not endure because the wicked surround the righteous. Justice becomes warped. This is God's word. Do you know what it's like to be on the losing side of injustice? When something is unfair in the world and you're the one being cheated, Habakkuk does. Or have you ever experienced trauma and the disorienting feelings that come from it? Habakkuk has. If so, I wonder, have you ever cried out to God like Habakkuk does? 
Have you ever questioned God's action or inaction? If so, then you're in good company. God's prophet Habakkuk does the same. Lord, how long will I call for help and you not listen? I cry out to you violence, but you don't deliver us. Make no mistake about it, the prophet is angry at God. How does God respond to the anger of his own prophet? How does God respond to your anger? Listen to God's own word, picking back up where we left off with verse 5. This is God speaking now. Look among the nations and watch. Be astonished and stare, because something is happening in your days that you wouldn't believe even if I told, I'm about to rouse the Chaldeans, which are the Babylonians. That bitter and impetuous nation, which travels throughout the earth to possess dwelling places it does not own, the Chaldean is dreadful and fearful. He makes his own justice and dignity. I don't know if you understand all that, but it's not comforting to Habakkuk. God basically says, you think this is bad, just wait for what's coming. Now that's, that's not what pastors are taught to do when someone comes into your office hurting. <laughs> but that seems to be God's first move in response to the prophet Habakkuk. It won't be God's last move, so hold on. But it will be his first. God God names the reality that things are going to get worse before they get better. God also claims that Babylon, the the wicked nation, the bitter and impetuous nation, I don't even know what impetuous means, I'll be honest. (laughs) I should have looked it up. (laughs) God also says that Babylon is being used as God's instrument for judgment. I'm about to rouse the Chaldeans, God says. Babylon is my tool for bringing about the judgment my people deserve. It's as if God said, this isn't just happening because Babylon is a stronger nation than you. This isn't just the natural rise and fall of nations. This isn't happening because I took a nap. No, I'm very aware of what's going on. In fact, Babylon is my instrument of judgment on Israel. Your time is up, Israel. You once were my people, but now you are not my people, as the prophet Hosea says. You broke the covenant. You committed serious injustice against those on the margins of society, the orphans, the widows, the foreigner. Some of you have even sacrificed your own children on the altar. I never commanded that. So I refuse to tolerate this behavior anymore. You must be held accountable for your wrongdoings. I still love you, but this isn't working anymore. You are no longer a light to the nations. Instead, you ruin my reputation. So judgment is coming, and it's coming from Babylon. That's essentially God's word to Habakkuk, his first word, and it's not comforting. And Habakkuk objects, but Babylon is even worse than Israel. How can a holy, good God use such an evil nation to do God's work? This is the line of questioning that flows through the rest of chapter 1. We won't read it all, but 
Habakkuk levels several objections and complaints to God, and he ends with these words, I will take my post, I will position myself on the fortress, I will keep watch to see what the Lord says to me and how he will respond to my complaint. You see, Habakkuk is unable to resolve the tension between God's goodness and Babylon's evil. It's not just an intellectual tension for him or for us. It's not just a difficult concept for him to wrap his mind around God's goodness, Babylon's evil. It's also the tension of the heart. We feel it in our own lives. We experience evil and suffering. We suffer alongside others who are suffering. And this is perhaps the hardest kind. We suffer as secondary sufferers, as the late Western Seminary professor Jim Cook calls it. And this suffering clearly has its source in sin and evil at times, and at other times it just seems random. So we do well to imitate Habakkuk, who directs his honest, raw complaint toward God. God, where are you in all this suffering? Are you off taking a nap somewhere? Are you too holy to get involved in the mess of my life? Why do you never answer my prayers? Like Habakkuk, we lodge our honest complaints to God, and God doesn't shame us for it. Like Habakkuk, we climb the watchtower and survey the scenes for any signs, just any sign of God's activity. We're looking for any divine movement whatsoever. Like Habakkuk, we take up our post and we wait for God's response. I will keep watch to see what the Lord says to me and how he will respond to my complaint. This brings us to verse 2. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write a vision and make it plain upon a tablet so that a runner can read it. There is still a vision for the appointed time. It testifies to the end. It does not deceive. If it delays, wait for it, for it is surely coming. It will not be late. Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them, but the righteous will live by faith. This is God's word. In this section of God's response, God's second word with Habakkuk, it extends all the way to, through the end of the chapter. Now, in, in this section, there are two main things going on, two takeaways from chapter 2, and we'll spend the rest of our time dealing with them. Takeaway number one. God's justice will prevail. God responds to Habakkuk, and he makes clear that Babylon won't get off the hook either. In the end, God's justice will prevail over all sin, evil, and the devil, including Babylon's evil against Israel. That's the first thing going on. We'll dive into it more in just a bit. Number two, the second thing going on, God speaks into Habakkuk's life the words, wait. <laughs> wait on me, he says. You can trust me. I am coming. Wait and hope all 
is not lost. Though the world falls apart, all is not lost. Though the walls of your life crumble all around you, all is not lost. For the righteous will live by faith. So let's go back to the first takeaway. The first thing going on in God's response to the prophet is that God makes clear that God's justice will prevail. In the end, God's justice will prevail. There is still a vision, God says, for the appointed time. It testifies to the end. This vision, as we discover reading the rest of of Habakkuk, it's a vision of God's victory over sin, evil, and every destructive force. This includes God's victory over the violent superpower Babylon and over every superpower like Babylon that comes after them. Now's a good time to make a plug for an upcoming three-week discipleship class. Starting next Sunday during discipleship hour, 11 a.m., we'll dive a little deeper into the book of Habakkuk. We'll do one chapter a week for the last three weeks of Advent. So if you're interested, next Sunday, 11 a.m., Habakkuk chapter 1. That's for you, Larry. But for now, you're just going to have to trust me. We're not going to read the whole book. But trust me. The vision God is talking about is a vision of God's victory over evil. In the long run, God's justice will prevail. Though it seems impossible today, we will all see it happen tomorrow, or the next day, or the next. We'll see the drama unfold with our own eyes. God will win over every force and form of evil, oppression, addiction, confusion, false accusation, even over the devil himself. God's justice will prevail in the end. Do you believe it? That's what Habakkuk sees for himself. An oracle, it's something you see. He sees this, and he talks to God about it. Chapter 3. You, referring to God, you go out to save your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you smashed the head of the house of wickedness laying bare the foundation up to the neck. Let that image sit with you for a moment. In the midst of such a terrible life, when Habakkuk sees Babylon destroying the land where he grew up, everything he knew, where he played with his friends, where his loved ones are buried, in the midst of such trauma and tragedy, God reveals this image to Habakkuk. God smashing the head of the house of wickedness. God piercing the head of his warrior, Babylon's warrior, with his own spear. The warriors are driven off, those who take delight in oppressing us, those who take pleasure in secretly devouring the poor. They're driven off. This is wild imagery, I admit, but it's intended to make a simple point The vision that Habakkuk sees when all the world falls apart around him is this. God's justice will prevail in the end. Do you believe this? Can you believe it in the midst of your own suffering? The pastor, and he was a pastor before anything, the pastor MLK Jr. put it this way. He said, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. The arc of the moral universe is long, 
but it bends toward justice. I would add that it doesn't just bend toward justice for natural reasons. Humanity is not basically good, such that over time we eventually progress and figure it out. Lots of people thought that in the early 1900s, There were great visions, if you read about uh, some of these folks in the 1900s, there were great visions of these societies of peace, utopia. And then what happened? World War I crashed it all down. In this present broken world, people are not basically good. They are basically selfish, Scripture teaches, and at least my own experience does as well. We're selfish creatures, Psychologists have observed this together, and they gave it a name. They say we operate with self-serving biases. This means that over time, if left to ourselves, we will not figure it out and make peace. We will destroy everything, including ourselves. Left to our own devices, here's what we do. We take a shovel out of the garage, and we proceed to dig ourselves into a deeper and deeper hole. Even our good intentions are so saturated in self-interest unless we invite the Spirit of Christ to purify them. Unless we do this, even our good intentions are dripping with self-interest, that we end up doing more harm than good. So how does the moral universe bend toward justice? Not because humanity will figure it out someday, I submit to you that the moral universe bends toward justice solely on account of Christ's disruptive saving work. Jesus Christ shouts a resounding no to all sin and evil and every self-destructive force. Christ decisively judges the world with the verdict that it is guilty Christ came into the world as the light that exposes the darkness, and the light came to his own people, and his own people rejected them. In fact, they crucified him. God uses the evil instrument of the cross to judge the sin of humanity once and for all. In this way, The wrath of God is poured out upon all peoples, past, present, and future, and the life force of all human existence, the Word made flesh, the second person of the Trinity, logos is the word John uses. It means something like life force. Friends, Christ, the life force, dies a brutal death. This is Christ's disruptive work of justice doesn't just come gradually over time because people are basically good. It's a disruptive act, Christ's act, but it's also a saving act because as Paul tells us, Christ who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is not easy stuff. Christ's suffering and death is God's way of pouring out God's wrath on humanity. But instead of pouring out his wrath on you and on me, God pours it on himself 
that is, on Jesus, the God-man, as the representative of humanity. So in Jesus Christ, the judge becomes judged in our place, as Karl Barth says. Think on that. The judge, capital J, becomes judged in our place. That's God's way of dealing with evil and injustice and suffering. And on the third day, on the third day, we see the truth behind the claim that God's justice prevails. That was the message God gives to Habakkuk. God's justice prevails. On the third day, we see the greatest sign for believing that our own sin will not have the last word. On the third day, we see why all the evil powers and forces in the world that cause so much suffering on a cosmic scale, we see why they will all ultimately surrender to the way of goodness and peace. On the third day, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb. And in the place they expected to find death, they found life. Life. Death was nowhere to be found. Turns out the power, get this, the power of life in Jesus was greater than the power of sin, death, and the devil. And nobody expected it. My friends, it still is, even for you. What they saw on the third day was God's clear victory over injustice. God's final proof that in the end, God's justice prevails, not death. Though the world falls apart now, God will make things right. There is still a vision for the appointed time, God tells Habakkuk. It testifies to the end. It's a vision of justice for all God's creation. If it delays, wait for it, for it is surely coming. It will not be late. That is the message of Advent. We wait for Christ's coming again to make all things right. So that's how God speaks courage into Habakkuk's life. And I hope it speaks courage into your life as well. Takeaway number two. Wait on God. In the knowledge of all this, wait Trust, hope against all odds, my friend. God's justice will prevail. Christ's death and resurrection are a sure sign that it's coming. The power of life, Paul says, the power of life that raised Jesus from the dead is still alive, and it's alive in you, and it's available to you. Whatever circumstance you find yourself, look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them. And they will get what they deserve if they don't humble themselves. But the righteous will live by faith. Now, in Habakkuk's life, this encouragement, this encouragement that God's justice will win, it comes before the third day. I suspect some of you are living before the third day as well. What I mean is that some of you are going through a difficult situation, and the resolution is nowhere in sight. The disciples had no idea on the second day what the resolution would be to Christ's death. Neither do you have any idea what the resolution will be to your problem. 
So God encourages Habakkuk before the third day. And because of this, I'm under no illusion that this encouragement from the scriptures will make everything better for you today. Life is still hard. It is tragic at times. It took me 30 years to admit it, but it's true. Even after God personally reveals this vision of God's justice to Habakkuk, life remains hard for him, even until the very end of his life, this side of heaven. God did not quickly restore Habakkuk's fortunes. In fact, Babylon ran all over Israel and bulldozed it. Life remained miserable for Israel for the next 30, 40 years. So I can't guarantee you, if you believe all that I'm saying, I can't guarantee that it'll magically make everything better. God may do this, and I certainly pray he does. But God may not, if Habakkuk's life is any indication. And I don't know why. Neither did Habakkuk. And God doesn't tell him why. So what do we do about it? Do we keep following this God, keep relying on him, even when our prayers are left unanswered? What are the other options? Here's how I see it. I see two options. Option number one. If you believe in Christ's saving work, then you will have a growing trust and reliance on God, even when it doesn't make sense. If you believe all that I said about Christ's death and resurrection, the power of life they release into the world, even your world, if you believe this, your confidence in God's final victory will increase. Your confidence will grow that God will win over sin, even your sin, and over the sins of others, and over all the injustices of the world. As you come to experience more of God, more of God's grace and power and love, I believe you will come to believe more and more that God's justice will prevail. As Habakkuk says, the righteous will live by faith. This doesn't just mean live by faith, becoming more hopeful as you step through the rocky parts of life. It also means that you will live by faith with the emphasis on live, truly live. How would you like to really live? <laughs> Eugene Peterson captures the spirit of Habakkuk 2 in his message paraphrase when he writes this. He says, The person in right standing before God were made right by Christ's sacrifice, not by what we do. The person in right standing before God, through loyal and steady believing, is fully alive. Really alive. I'd like to be fully alive. Would you? My friends, to be fully alive is available to you no matter what you're going through, no matter what you've been through, because God is the life giver and God is available to you no matter what you're going through. And that's the first option. That's our first response, even when our prayers aren't unanswered. We can cling to Christ's righteousness, which makes us righteous, and we can live by faith. Look at the proud. Their spirit's not right in them, but the righteous will live, I mean truly live, by faith. Or we can be proud. That's the second option. We can be proud. We can not ask for help. We can 
rely on ourselves. We can endlessly demand from God answers to everything, which is really our striving to be all-knowing like God. If you remember Genesis 3, that's the oldest sin of the book, to become like God in his knowledge. That's the second option. We can be proud. We can resist Christ's saving work for us. We can deny that work for us. We can refuse to trust. We can pretend, we can pretend like the world would run much better if we were in God's shoes. But here's the result of that kind of life, at least as I see it. You will feel like justice is never served, and it never will be for you. Cynicism will become the mold that grows on your soul until you are old and gray, and then you'll die. That's the result, I think, of that choice. Do you believe that God's justice will prevail? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Habakkuk believes after receiving the vision of justice from God. And then he becomes a shining example of what it's like for the righteous to live by faith, though the worlds fall apart. So listen to this concluding words, his concluding words to his book. He writes, Though the fig tree doesn't bloom, and there's no produce on the vine, though the olive crop withers, and the fields don't provide food, Though the sheep are cut off from the pen and there are no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my deliverance. The Lord is my strength. He will set my feet like the deer. He will let me walk upon the heights. My friends, this vision that God gives Habakkuk changes everything for him. He is able to live by faith. Though the world falls apart, yet he will rejoice in the Lord. My friends, I pray that God would set your feet like the deer. What are a deer's feet like? I wanted to ask Tyler earlier, but I uh, didn't see you. What are a deer's feet like? (laughs) They are built tough and strong. They are able to endure the rocks, but they can also walk gracefully through life. May God give you feet like the deer as you see a vision even greater than the vision of Habakkuk. May you see Jesus, who died for the injustice of the world, who was raised to right the wrongs of our lives and the world's too. May you see Jesus today, with his eyes focused on you with a fierce love, a a love that will never let you go, regardless of what happens, regardless of what you do. May you hear Jesus say, wait, trust, hope against all odds. I am coming back. I'm coming to rescue once and for all, for God's sake. Come, Lord Jesus, and come soon. Amen. Sisters and brothers, as we await Christ's return, we also acknowledge and celebrate the fact that Christ is with us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we live in this both and, that Christ is here, and Christ is not fully here in his kingdom reign yet. 
And so here we come to the table, we have a tangible sign and seal that Christ is present with us for those times when we feel distant and far apart from God because of our own sin and the sin in the world. Here in these elements, we are reminded of what Christ has done for us to make all things new. Even now, Christ is here with us. So as we come to the table, please join in these words of remembrance, communion, and hope. God is with us. Christ is present here. Spirit. Let us give thanks to God in memory and in hope. Blessings be to you, creator God.